Hello, I'm uh, Laurent Bouzereau, the director and producer of Natalie Wood, What Remains Behind. The day my mom died, my entire world was shattered. Since then, there's been so much focus on how she died that it's overshadowed who she was as a person. I am Natasha Gregson-Wagner, and my mom was Natalie Wood. Natalie Wood falls into the category of an icon. She's like this mythology character. She had a big heart, and that showed up in her work. I've enjoyed the part where you at, not the stardom that follows it. The studio system controlled everything in her life. She wanted to have control over the choices. I did get the right to choose West Side Story. She was one of the few women that had that power. My mom had a string of relationships. RJ was the love of her life. It was like two parts of the same whole. Nat and RJ were both major stars. Natalie and I got married in Paradise Cove. We got a boat together and spent most weekends in Catalina. That night, I went below, and she wasn't there. Natalie was gone. We've stayed connected through all of it. What do we think about reopening this case? I don't think there's a day that has ever gone by that I haven't thought about Natalie. I'm an actress and a wife, a mother. She was larger than life, not because she was famous. That was just her. Her vulnerabilities, passion, strength, and intelligence. All of that is there. That is the trailer for the recently released HBO documentary, Natalie Wood, What Remains Behind. Available on HBO Now, HBO Go, and On Demand. And this is Factual America. Factual America is produced by Alamo Pictures, a production company specializing in documentaries, television, and shorts about the USA for an international audience. I'm your host, Matthew Sherwood, and every week we look at America through the lens of documentary filmmaking by interviewing filmmakers and experts on the American experience. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Alamo Pictures to be the first to hear about new productions, to find out where you can see our films, and to connect with our team. Natalie Wood, What Remains Behind is a compelling look at Hollywood in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, and the life of a true American film icon, Natalie Wood, whose life was tragically cut short. Ultimately, the film is about one family's triumphs, its tragedies, and its triumph over tragedy, explains the award-winning filmmaker and New York Times best-selling author, Laurent Bouzereau. Factual America recently caught up with Laurent from his home in California. Laurent Bouzereau, welcome to Factual America. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled. Yes, how are you doing? How are things in California? Well, things are... The same way they are all over the world at the moment, you know, it's been uh, very sad and, and, and sort of uh, stressful, you know, but uh, trying to uh, stay busy and trying to uh, stay optimistic. Well, I think it is, unfortunately, this is the great leveler, isn't it? We're all in the same boat around the world, it, it, it seems. Um, and what time is it in California? 
It is 7.15 in the morning. So don't talk too loud to wake me up. <laughs> <laughs> so I hope you have a big pot of coffee or whatever you like to have in the morning. And uh, thank you so much for getting up so early and, and joining us here at, uh, at Factual America. It's very much appreciated. No, um, I appreciate it as well. Thank you. Uh, so uh, our, our listeners and viewers will have heard and seen the, the, the trailer. The, the film is Natalie Wood. Uh, what remains behind now i mean it may seem a little odd for you and certainly does for me to ask this question but uh uh you know she passed away nearly 40 years ago now i think that probably half her listeners may not have even been alive yet uh when when that happened and may not even really know who she, who she is so uh if you don't mind tell us uh who was natalie wood well you know it's interesting you, you you're mentioning that a lot of people don't know who she is um and, and that was actually one of the reasons why I wanted to make this film. Uh, but, you know, for, for me, she was emblematic of, of so many things. She started her career as an actress as a, as a kid when she was five or six years old and, and was in a very iconic movie called Miracle on 34th Street. And, and people who discovered that movie when they were kids, you know, literally uh, grew up with her. Uh, and and that's very unique, you know, in film history that basically, you know, uh, you're a child and you see a child actor on the screen and you fall in love with that actor. And then suddenly you you really follow the trajectory, not only uh, um, in cinema, but in her life. And people really like uh, uh, identified with her. And so when she got married, it was a big thing, a big deal, you know, when she got married to Robert Wagner and, 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 and of course she was in Rebel Without a Cause with James Dean and West Side Story and Splendor in the Grass and, and sadly, you know, passed away uh, of a tragic accident. And um, I think that when she passed away, a lot of people felt they had lost you know, a, a soulmate, someone they had grown up with and, and uh, uh, someone they looked up to and, and a very courageous actor, someone who I discovered, you know, had actually a choice of, of films she wanted to do. Um, not, not her entire career, but at one point she rebelled against the system and, and said, you know, I don't want to be this, this actor who is imposed movies upon and I want to be able to select my own films. And that's how she was able to, to choose, you know, West Side Story. Um, and, and, and so therefore, when you, when you know that, you start looking at her films in a complete different light. You, you see them as autobiographical almost, or as movies with, with themes that spoke about what she believed in and who she was, you know? So, um, I, I, I would say she's a pretty unique uh, uh, actress from her generation where you, you line up all the movies she was able to do during her very short life. But because she started so early when she was very, very young, you sort of get a, a, a view over the Hollywood, uh, over the, the history of Hollywood. You see the Hollywood system at, at, at its max, you know, and you see it getting looser and looser. And then you see her working with directors like Paul Mazursky or Sidney Pollack, who were just starting their careers. 
And you, you see like the new Hollywood, they're no longer filming in what is really and obviously a set. You see them filming on the streets of New York, for example, like in Love with a Proper Stranger. It's in black and white New York 60s. And, you know, uh, uh, people on the streets are looking into the camera. It's like the new Hollywood, you know. And her last movie, arguably uh, Brainstorm, directed by Douglas Trumbull. Uh, it was his second movie as a director, but he was, um, uh, and still is, you know, a, a visual effects uh, genius who had worked on 2001 and Close Encounters and Blade Runner. And and uh, um, that movie was, you know, about virtual reality. So when she passed away, she was again ahead of the curve, working with uh, uh, someone exploring things that we are um, sort of experiencing today, which is VR. So it's interesting looking at her, um, and I hope that young people who don't know who she is, after seeing the documentary, will be curious about um, watching her films because you learn so much, not only about who she is as a person, as I said, but about uh, uh, the evolution of of cinema uh, in the context of Hollywood. I mean, I think that's a very good point. You've uh, you've already touched on a number of things I wanted to uh, to address and ask you about. Uh, but you know, she lived this big life in front of everyone's eyes from the time she was three or four years old, and she was a member of what I would call Hollywood royalty. I mean, the, the images in your film are amazing. The people that are not just alluded to, the people you get on camera even. Um, but in these iconic films, and I think for someone of my age, I'm about the same age as I think her children, uh, you know, these films from the 60s, they were, I mean, even after West Side Story, they're, they're, they're pushing boundaries. These are some, uh, you know, they're, they're not even old for the, they've, they've weathered quite well. Oh, uh, absolutely. I mean, I, I mean, I think that, um, I'll argue that films of the 70s and, and, and the 60s have aged better than films of the 80s. Uh, and that's across yeah. the board, not, n- n- not um, just in America, you know. Um, and, and so when you see a movie like Bob and Ted and Carolyn Alice, you know, um, they're doing a play on Broadway based on it right now. So she was, again, you know, like doing something um, that uh, is still feels, you know, uh, uh, relevant. And, you know, even as a person, her, uh, uh, her friend and confidant who sadly passed away um, a week I, before I saw um, mm-hmm. uh, we, we went into, into the situation with COVID, uh, uh, Mark Crowley, um, she she facilitated for him to write this play, Boys in the Band, which was a benchmark for uh, you know not only theater but but uh, uh, gay culture, LGBTQ issues, um, and that was revived on on Broadway last year to incredible success, and uh, is now going to be a, a new film on Netflix because it was directed by William Friedkin. Um, originally, and and, and so not that she was a producer on on the original play or film, but she is the one who nurtured Mark Crowley and allowed him to to explore and and exploit his his creativity. And ultimately, that's what came out of it. And and it's a benchmark. So it's interesting how the sort of Natty Wood, uh, uh, um, 
you, you know, you know, movement uh, still ripple uh, today, e even though we may not even be aware of it, you know, but without her, um, there would be potentially no Mark Crowley uh, uh, play Boys in the Band, you know, so there's a lot to be grateful for um, her loyalties and, and her friendships and, and how she really, you, you, you know, because as a child, uh, she was forced into acting. Uh, I think that there was a sense, and, and we, we talk about the accident that she had on one of the movies uh, when she was a kid and, and, and injured her, her wrist bone, and hence why she always wore a, a bracelet um, in every, uh, all the time. Um, uh, you, you, you you get a sense that she was a real nurturer of people. She was very protective. Uh, and um, and when she was working with other kids in a movie, she was extremely conscious of protecting them. And when um, she worked with other actors, I mean, there's this funny story on West Side Story when, when she... Um, got onto the picture, they, they had been rehearsing already the, the film. She got in kind of late and uh, they were rehearsing on stages that didn't have air conditioning. And, and I mean, if you can imagine rehearsing on the soundstage, dance numbers with, you know, uh, many dancers, that, that was extremely painful. And, and uh, the second she got in and they said, we don't have air conditioning, she made one phone call and everybody had, uh, uh, had air conditioning. And it kind of became obvious to everyone, if you want anything, you just go to Natalie and she'll make it happen, you know? Yeah, no, I think, I mean, this gets this point. I mean, I feel like she was a woman ahead of her time. I think your film captures that and how she's, I think the term empowered was used. And uh, someone else mentioned... Uh, the only woman who could get a film made probably at, at that time, uh, within reason, uh, you know, given the constraints. Uh, but you were talking about this loyalty, but she even got Robert, Robert Redford's career launched, didn't she? Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, she. it's interesting with Redford, you know, he was already uh, on, on Broadway, you know, Barefoot in the Park, and, and uh, but she uh, g gave him a chance, you know, to be on the big screen with Inside Dizzy Clover, playing a gay character of all things, uh, um, which was even more kind of daring, you, you, you know, for the time. And, and also, uh, uh, this property is condemned where, I mean, that, that was a revelation to me because that's not a movie that I had seen before. Um, uh, shame on me, but, uh, I discovered it in the process of making this film yeah. and, and I was just blown away. I think the ending is, it, it wraps up a, a little too fast for, for my taste, but, uh, the rest of the movie is is spectacular. It's almost like her um, streetcar named Desire type of of performance. Um, and uh, of course, you know, uh, 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 property is is based on uh, Tennessee Williams. But um, I, I I just um, think that she really had a knack at at uh, discovering people. And I think I think Redford, in so many ways, you know, is almost a male equivalent of her in that not only is, is he this spectacular actor, but um, 
but he 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 is he became a filmmaker himself. He's a producer. He he created Sundance and 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 there she was a, a woman, even though not necessarily entitled. She was a producer, uh, um, you know, and she had a production company with uh, Robert Wagner. They developed, you know, Charlie's Angels. I mean. You, you, you know, there's a lot of interesting things about her that she was doing that no one else was doing. And I think there were kind of kindred spirits, her her and Redford. And, and, and you know, um, after she launched his career, he, he, he did um, Downhill Racer, which was produced by her then husband, um, Richard Gregson. And, and, and Gregson and Redford started a production company together, uh, which, uh, literally, you know, launched him to become the Redford that we know. But had she lived, I, I would say she would have been a director. She would have been a producer. Today, she would have a, a series on Netflix or on HBO. Uh, uh, she would be, uh, working with Tarantino and Spielberg. And, 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 and that's where, you know, you get very nostalgic about her. You feel like you were robbed of a, a an incredible talent and someone who, um, had such incredible instinct, um, uh, with material and, and took chances. At a time where it, it, it was very daring for for performers, especially as you get older, and Mia Farrow talks about that, you know how difficult it was then for for women, and I think t- still to this day, you know, to find really uh, powerful roles once you you get to be over forty, you know. I think um, I think hold that thought because I think we'll I, I, w- I would like to talk more about the the choices that uh, certainly. Uh, female actors uh, face, but I agree. If I think uh, if she had lived, it's not about mantles, you know, statues on the mantelpiece, but in some form or fashion, she would have won a, an Oscar or or two. I, I'm sure. Oh yeah, no, I mean, and I mean, you know, she was nominated by the age of 25. You know, for three, she she she, she for three movies. You know, so uh, um, it, it's sad that she never got to to win one. But you know, I, I I'm one of those. Persons, you know, who, who really do not judge people by by their awards. I mean, yeah. Hitchcock never won an Oscar. Um, his films exactly. did, you know, but yeah. uh, um, Hitchcock never won an Oscar, and he's arguably, you you know, one of my all time favorites. And and uh, you know, uh, it took a while for Steven Spielberg to win an Oscar, and Scorsese, and mm. Brian De Palma, who I. I've admired, um, uh, n- you know, never got nominated. And, and um, it, it, you know, this, we all know all those awards are, are extremely uh, uh, political. And, and so I, um, I don't think that's necessarily a, a goal. You know, what is harder than winning an Oscar is longevity and how much talent is able to, um, endure a long career, a career during which you reinvent yourself, you take chances, and you start addressing yourself not necessarily to the generation who knows you, but to the next generation. That's the hardest thing to do, whether you are Natalie Wood or a director or anybody in the business, you know, is how do you stay relevant? I mean, I myself, you know, um, struggle with that, you know, because I started doing documentaries in, in, in my, um, 
in my early early 30s you know and and uh-huh. uh, um how do i maintain you know a fresh outlook on the work i do as a filmmaker and how do i transition maybe even to narrative films so i'm not comparing myself to those great people but it, it is you know it doesn't matter at what level you're at you know you it's more important for me to stay relevant and have a career than to win an award, you know. She was owned by the studio and she didn't want to be owned. She wanted to have control over the choices. I mean, if she's going to spend three months doing a film, she wants to believe in it. So she took on Jack Warner and told him, I'm going to go on strike because I don't like the roles that you're choosing for me. The suspension lasted about 18 months so mm. that the punishment was that if you wouldn't work for them, you couldn't work anywhere else either. It wasn't that I was trying to get more money. That really wasn't it at all. But what I eventually did get the right to do was the right to choose one picture a year that, you know, was my choice. The first one that I was able to choose was West Side Story. So we're talking about, you know, Natalie and this, um, you know, this, 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 how she was ahead of her time and she's this empowered woman and all these things she did achieve and probably would have achieved if she had if her life hadn't been so tragically uh, cut short but yet you know there's this this period in her life where she she meets Robert Wagner for the second time they get remarried and they have I mean what struck me was what such a normal family life they had there on, on Cannon Drive in, in Beverly Hills, I think it was. I mean, the house looks like it could be in anywhere in America, suburbia. I wouldn't have guessed that was Beverly Hills. And all the pictures and footage that you have, and I imagine a lot of it's family footage, um, is amazing. These, these birthday parties and things, it just seemed, everything seemed so, as I hate to put it this way, seemed so normal. Well, I tell you, that was another reason why I really wanted to make this movie. And that gets me emotional because, you know, I'm very, very close to my family. Uh, some of them live actually in uh, in London and, and Paris. Um, and, um, you know, when I was approached to do this film and I was shown those personal photos and the home movies that even some of them had never been processed before. They found them in storage. Uh, um, I related to that story in a very personal kind of way. And that was sort of like the indication for me that even if you don't know who Natalie Wood is, you will relate to the family story. And and, um, what is it to, to have, you know, this beautiful, perfect family, the triumph, the loss and the ultimately triumph over loss, you know, but the thing that, I mean, you use the the word normal, you know, uh, um, it, it's, I mean, more than normal, it's relatable for me, you know, yeah. and, 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 um, because, you know, they were obviously very well off. And, 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 uh, <laughs> uh, it's, it's not every day you have Fred Astaire at one of your parties. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you know, I, I, I just love the way, that and you know I experienced that firsthand with with them you know when I met Robert Wagner you know obviously I'm you know hate that word but I'm a fan you know one of the first movies I saw as a kid that that 
I would say traumatized me, but at the same time made me want to make movies with the towering inferno. And he is in the towering inferno. And that was the first movie poster I ever bought that I had in my bedroom, you know, which I still have. I, I, I want to mention, uh, and, and there is Robert Wagner and he has one of those most spectacular scenes in the film. And, 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 and anyway, so I, I get to meet him, you know, and, and, I'm realizing that there is that, um, you, you, you know, in addition to him being this big star, you know, there's, uh, we're going to be talking about the loss of Natalie and, and all that. And this is just a casual conversation I'm having with him uh, uh, at the very, very beginning. And immediately, I just felt I was talking to a, a family a member of a member of my family I got the feeling I was talking to a member of my family and yeah. and he was just so warm and so um casual and normal and he had his dog Max who's passed away since uh since we first met and and we just bonded immediately and I imagine that Natalie was the same way you know the sort of like and and um, you, you know, he's the guy that if he finds out you have a cold, he'll call you, he'll call. He said, okay, I have the best doctor in Beverly Hills. I'm sending him over. He, I mean, unbelievably kind and generous and, and genuine. Uh, um, and I remember we went to his house in, in, in Aspen and, and he said, oh, I want to show you the kitchen because Jill, my wife, you know, collects all those pots and, and, and they're from France, and I want to show you. And he takes us to the kitchen, and Jill says, what are you taking them to the kitchen? It's not clean enough. I, I didn't do the dishes, and the maid wasn't here, da-da-da. <laughs> and and or he's like, I want to show them the kitchen, <laughs> you know? And so, I mean, it's it's just so crazy. And there I am, I'm pinching myself. I'm like, wait a minute, I'm with R.J. Wagner, you know? And, 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 and there, there is, you know, this normalcy that... that you feel then is accessible. And and to your point about that, it was really important for me that I think that, that in that film, that I didn't want it to feel like this old dusty Hollywood story, you know, where the stars are so far in the sky, they're not reachable. And, and it's like this aristocracy that you could only dream of being part of. And no, they were normal. I mean, she didn't always wear makeup and she went to the supermarket like everybody else, you know. And and I think, again, you know, you find that theme of someone who, you know, could could put it on for the cameras and the photographers when she went to a premiere uh, or an award show, but also could be that totally real person, you know, who was in touch with uh, psychology and psychiatry and the importance of mental health. And, and, and that came with, with her wanting to nurture people and help them through hard times, whether it was financially or psychologically, you know, and, and that feels very real to me. And again, you know, it's like, in a way, I feel the film demystifies the the Hollywood star image that we would get if we were doing a documentary about any anyone else of our generation. You know, uh, um, 
where you feel like this is just not a normal life, you know, this feels completely unattainable. Uh, that felt real. That felt like I could relate to those people. And, and again, the fact that they were movie stars felt like second to the fact that they were real human beings, you know. And so it, it's at this, you know, these, certainly in the 1970s. So did she make a choice or because it, certainly her career slowed down and she's concentrating on her family. I mean, and it, is this a choice that really or was it? Did she have really control over that choice? Um, you know, that was definitely a choice. And at the same time, it became a dilemma because, you know, it's very clear in the film that that um, when she did Rebel Without a Cause, she fell in love really with her profession, with acting. I think that was the first movie that she really fought for, that, you know, that became a benchmark, not only in terms of cinema, but in terms of, of, of her own love for... Um, for the art form of acting. And, and, and it's interesting, you know, because she is someone who lived the roles and she, I don't think she was method, but I think she, she really entered that universe in a very intense way um, to the point of, of falling in love with the director, you know, Nick Ray, um, uh, which is a whole other controversy, but not to be addressed here. Uh, um, I, I, I just think that at the same time, she was a family person, someone who had struggled in her childhood, who was robbed of her childhood, you know, by Hollywood. Um, and I think it was super important for her to have children and to give to those children you know, uh, the, the childhood that she had not had. And, and, and I think that when she had Natasha, she became obsessed with being a mom and that became, um, her biggest role. And we see the same dedication that she gave to Rebel Without a Cause and Splendor in the Grass and West Side Story to, another role, which is, you know, that of her mom um, and, and that of a family person. But I think that once you've fallen in love with something like cinema and, and, and you, you live in a town where um, there are so many uh, opportunities that I think it's impossible to cast that away completely and, and, and to say, you know, uh, um, I'm never going to do this again. Um, and I think that when she started meeting directors like Sidney Pollack and, and Paul Mazursky and, and all those incredible filmmakers who, who were, um, and, and you know, the seventies in Hollywood, I mean, come on. I mean, it's the most exciting time Ever, you know, you have Steven Spielberg and George Lucas and Scorsese and Brian De Palma, Peter Bogdanovich and John Milius. And I mean, all the filmmakers that that, I mean, really forged the next step in, in, in cinema worldwide, you know, making all those incredible films. And you have also actors emerging from those times. And, and I can't imagine being an actor you know, and going like, eh, 
I'm just going to move on, you know, and, uh, um, and so she couldn't. And, and then, you know, ultimately when she met Chris Walken, uh, on Brainstorm, who is arguably, you know, one of the greats and, and someone who is coming off of Deer Hunter and, and, and reinventing a, a new language in terms of acting, you know, um, the dilemma really, uh, uh, uh presented itself. Um, where it's the first time in several years where she is working and RJ is working. And one could argue that the family unit is sort of broken. Uh, um, the kids are not with their mom uh, while RJ is filming and they're not with their dad either. And, and that's the first time it's happened. And, and, and so, you know, she is really uh, um, weighing out that equation, you know, what is more important and how do I make both of those things uh, work? And, and I think that when faced with someone like Chris Walken, uh, um, who is such a powerful actor, you know, um, you, you're even more uh, uh, justified in wanting to um, to continue your career. So... Sadly, when she died, I think she was unresolved on that, on making that work. But I think she would have made it work. Uh, and, and, and I think that RJ and her would have found a way to make it work. Um, and also the kids were getting a little older, you know, I mean, not Courtney so much, but Natasha. And I think Natasha would have been maybe, you, you know, um, as she became a nurturer of her own sister, you know, uh, there was Katie also. And, and um, I want to believe they would have made it work, but it was definitely a very, very difficult time for her um, only because she was an emotional and caring person, you know, uh, those decisions may have been easier for other people who didn't care, you know, but she cared. I always knew that she was an actor, but, you know, around the house, my mom didn't wear a lot of makeup and she was very casual. So I would look at her and think, what is, what's the big deal about you, lady? But then she and my stepdad would get dressed up and they would go out to dinner or something and she was amazing looking. But we weren't raised by someone who seemed like a movie star at all. All she just seemed was sort of larger than life, but not because she was famous, more because she was just her. You're listening to Factual American. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Alamo Pictures to keep up to date with new releases or upcoming shows. Check out the show notes to learn more about the program, our guests, and the team behind the production. Now back to Factual America. Welcome back to Factual America. We're with uh, Laurent Buzereau, who's the director of Natalie Wood, What Remains Behind. Uh, we've been talking a lot about Natalie Wood, uh, the life that she's led. And uh, I think I, I wanted, at this point, maybe ask you a question, Laurent. Um, um, you know, it's been said that what distinguishes your work, your docs, is their tutorial zeal. He wants you to know why a movie matters. So why does this movie matter? Um, well, you know, it, it, as a documentary filmmaker, you know, or as a filmmaker, period, you know, you, you constantly want to discover things, you know. And, and, and so 
from a really selfish uh, personal perspective, you know, this is something that came to me and I and sort of revealed itself. And I just felt, wow, there is a challenge here to tell a story uh, that I wasn't completely aware of. Of course, I knew the films of Natalie Wood, but I, I, I just felt um, compelled to to tell that story in a way that was non chronological, that was uh, thematic. I wanted to break the form. I wanted to to bring different styles of of um, of filming, even uh, interviews. Uh, and I'll open a little. Uh, um, uh, a little thing here, like a lot of people refer to interviews as talking heads. And I think that's the most insulting thing you could tell uh, uh, anyone, uh, let alone uh, someone who does documentaries, because um, I would call them close-ups, you know, and sometimes extreme close-ups. Uh, um, because those interviews that I did for that movie were extremely hard. I had to be extremely well prepared. And I would say that of my 28 years of doing this type of work, I have never been uh, so moved and so challenged um, in interviewing people because, it, you know, it's one thing to to talk about the happy part, but it's something else to to lead up to the loss. And whether it was with friends or the family, you know, as the filmmaker, I know that I, I I need to get a certain performance, so to speak, even though it's not manufactured or scripted. But at the same time, I want to be respectful of the emotions, and and that was extremely hard. And and I would find myself in tears, literally asking those questions, and we would all cry together, and um, it was it, it it was really tough. And as I was filming, I, I just felt the importance of the film being underlined, you know, by by my emotions and by, by what I was feeling. And I was channeling literally, you know, what those people were feeling. And I've stayed friends, you know, with most of them or in touch, you know, which which again, you know, like when you're just meeting someone for an interview for a couple of hours, you know, you, you don't expect to form a friendship necessarily. And, and, and I have, so I, I really hope that again, you know, that the viewers are feeling that sort of a journey that I'm having. And so, um, so, so that felt important because I think that, uh, we need emotional stories of family and, and we need, to demystify maybe um, the stories of Hollywood. Um, and, and I felt I could do that with that particular story, you know? It, it, it wouldn't be the same if I was doing, um, you, you, you know, a number of other actors of that generation, you, you, you know, not to diminish them in the face of Natalie, but it didn't have the same arc, you know? And so... Um, so, so, so that's why it felt important, and 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 it felt also, you know, with uh, uh, the Me Too movement and the importance of the LGBTQ community and dialogue over that, that Natalie was tapped into all those themes that are very, very much at the forefront of what we're discussing today, and, and I'm like, how beautiful to be able to to show her as a pioneer of those themes and those issues um, in her time at a time where it was even uh, more difficult to have those discussions, you know? Um, and uh, um, I hope that in one way, you know, I've opened up a little window into, into, uh, into 
that aspect of who she was, aside from being this, uh, you know, amazing actress. I mean, personally, uh, I'll just say I never expected to see Robert Wagner uh, sort of break down and cry on on camera, and it was like watching my own father really crying. To be to be honest, um, I mean, how did you get involved with the project? Uh, you know, was this your idea, or how did this? How did you get to this point? No, it, it actually, this project was not my idea. Um, I've I've. I've been in touch and have had a friendship with this gentleman named Manoa Bowman, who is uh, an archivist and writer of, of Hollywood. And so he's helped me with a number of projects in the past when I need photos and he knows where all the photos are buried. Uh, uh, yeah. um, and, and he's quite a, an incredible resource. And, and he called me um, two and a half years ago and he said, listen, I just finished this beautiful coffee table book on Natalie Wood, and I want to send you a copy. And um, in in the midst of, of of doing the book, I discovered home movies and and personal photos. We couldn't put obviously home movies in the in the, in the book, but we couldn't put all the photos. We found an article that Natalie had written, and we just show a couple of excerpts in the book. And we, I kind of think that could be a documentary uh, made about Natalie Wood. Can you recommend a filmmaker? And I said, dude, why? What about me? And he's like, well, I didn't want to assume you like Natalie Wood. I want you, you, and I said, are you kidding? I, I, I said to him, I remember, I said, you know, if you don't like Natalie Wood, you don't like cinema. If you don't know Natalie Wood, uh, 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 you, you don't know cinema. So, uh, uh, um, on that, he said, well, let, let me introduce you to the family because uh, uh, that would be the make or break, you know, of of, um, of the project. So uh, we had lunch with Natasha and um, I immediately, and he said to me about Natasha, he said, you're not going to think she looks like her mom, but as you talk to her, she's going to morph into Natalie Wood. And that's exactly what happened. And it's, it's actually kind of a surreal experience, you know, uh, to to sit across from Natasha and and suddenly feeling like you're talking to Natalie Wood. And Natasha was so real and so straightforward, um, generous and yet tough, you know, and um, just very empowering, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that she said, you know, I, I really like you. I, I think, you know, you could, tell a great story and she started telling me about her family the challenges you know that the film would could represent and and I was on board so um I've had a relationship with uh Steven Spielberg for for 28 years and and uh Amblin and so I always go to them first when I get uh proposed any anything uh um um and so I went to Amblin Television and I said, listen, you know, there's this incredible project, what do you think? And so they met with Natasha and and immediately we all decided to to form this little family uh, of uh, of the Natalie Wood clan, you know. And um yeah. and and together Amblin Television and and Manoa and and Natasha and myself went around town pitching the film. And it was um, I won't lie, you know, it was difficult. It was difficult for the reasons that you mentioned. A lot of people, you know, that you meet in um, at networks and uh, streamers, you know, 
are extremely young and have zero idea who she is. And um, uh, it's, it was difficult because then you have to explain why this is a story that needs to be told today and, and, and why this is a story that young people will want to watch, you know. And sometimes you're convincing because people have an open mind and sometimes, you know, they're stuck with telling the story of uh, Tiger King, you know. Uh, um, so um, it, was, it was a challenge. And uh, luckily we... Uh, we pitched to HBO and I have to say uh, Lisa Heller and Nancy Abraham from HBO were extraordinary partners. I mean, the the sort of freedom and, and yet the, the very specific direction and, and um, sort of collaboration we had creatively really was um, like one that I had not experienced before. They, they were... Uh, they, they really challenged a lot of of the things that I was doing in in the most constructive way, and and got me to to make some adjustments and and so on that that really made a big difference. And yet, you know, the film is completely my vision and yes. was not. You, you know, the one thing that was that was potentially problematic is the feeling that the family controlled the film and they didn't. Uh, um, you, you, you know, I, I did show the film to RJ and to everyone who participated, but none of them had approval. It was not, it was an FYI. It was not, uh, um, of course, you know, if there were some mistakes made, um, you know, in, in, in an interview and there were a couple of people who said something and, and it happened to be the wrong facts, you know, I would, I would correct it. But, uh, um, other than that, there was no, uh, they had zero control. Even Natasha, um, who is a producer and arguably had a voice, you know, during the production was more of a guide in terms of illustration, who we, you know, how do I get in touch with Mia Farrow? How do I get in touch with Redford? And, and, and also she was on screen, you know, but in terms of the cutting room, she never came, you know, and, and, uh, um, and that was by design. And, and, you know, it wasn't a fight or anything. It was like, you know, let me make my movie, you know? So, um, uh, it was, it was great. And, and it was, it was hard because you, you know, I, I don't believe, I don't believe that you can ever be definitive, you know? And, and I also believe that you must have a point of view and a through line. And my editor, Jason Summers, used to refer to the through line versus rabbit holes. You know, like, well, how come you don't talk about this rumor or about this? I said, because it's a rabbit hole. It's like, it goes nowhere. And then good luck getting back into your through line, which mm -hmm. is a story of a family, you know? Mm -hmm. So, so it, it was, it was never meant, I mean, my first cut was three hours long and I was just like, I have to get it down to an hour and 45 minutes, you know? Uh, uh, and so there were a lot of sacrifices, but it kept me honest, you know, it kept me like compact. And, and, and once you're at peace with that and you're not trying to cram in everything in the kitchen sink in there, you, you know, you, you find yourself really telling a story, you know? Uh, um, and, and, and hopefully, you know, it was, um, it is the film I wanted to make for, you know, hopefully um, people feel that it 
it, 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 it succeeded, you know? Well, I mean, I highly recommend the film I, I, to our listeners. Uh, it's, and as you say, I think that was an interesting point you made because I had wondered myself because you, you don't, uh, as they would say in, in England, it's, uh, you show warts and all. I mean, you, you know, you show everything. Uh, you didn't avoid any issues, any obvious issues and, and things like that. And I guess... And and you had all these great, uh, you know, amazing people that came on uh, on camera to talk about Natalie's life. I mean, did you did you consider? Did you try to get Christopher Walken on? Both Christopher Walken and and Lana Wood were invited to participate, and they declined. You know, okay. so and and I mean, uh, and I think this is an opportunity for you to sort of, you know, I think the film's pretty um, pretty straightforward, but uh, you know, there is this all this controversy and things that surround Natalie's uh, uh, untimely death. I mean, what do you personally think happened that night, just that Thanksgiving weekend 39 years ago? Uh, what I believe is what's in the film, you know, I, I really do. And uh, uh, that's my conviction and that's, that's how it is in the film. If I were to add anything to that is that myself watching it, it's, some things that were said by Natasha, especially, and about what the Natalie was like as a as a mom and how she tried to sleep, and it just it seemed, it just I to me it seems like it sets the record straight because I, I think it it just seems so realistic that easily could have that's that's what happened. I I hope so. You know, I mean, I think there was uh, uh, there's this feeling that Natalie Wood is remembered, you know, for the way she died and not the the, the way she lived. Oh. Um, one thing that I want to underline is that um, a big decision I made is not to do an investigative, you know, type of, of, of film. I, I you, you know, I committed to that point of view of the family as an emotional, personal story, not a detective story, you know, because there is no case, you know. Uh, so um, that's... That's my belief, and that's based on on my discussions with everyone you see in the film, uh, and you know that's what it is. And and I think is to 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 add to that is that uh, this is this film's about her life and not her death, isn't it? You know, and 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 what it, and the impact it had. If it is about her death, it's about the impact it had on her family and those around her. Yeah, I mean, again, you know, I mean, to me, you, you know, it's super important as a, as a filmmaker to always have a thematic, you know. And I think that it is about triumph. It's about loss and it's about triumph over loss, ultimately, of this family, not only losing Natalie, but being losing her on the world stage, you know, and how do you survive this and how do you go on, you know, and I think there's a lot to be inspired by um, in in the film about the notion of, of losing a parent, you know, and the shock that one has to, uh, to, get over eventually, you know, and, and, and focus, refocus that energy into, um, sorry, this badly said, but uh, I think there's something very empowering about the notion of loss in the film that I think can, can help a lot of people. In fact, you know, a lot of people, when we had, um, a, a public screening in the, 
uh, at Sundance, they, there's always the industry screenings, but there's also a public screening. It was interesting. Uh, there was a Q&A after the screening, and it was not even questions. It was statements from people of all ages. There was someone who was easily in their 20s to someone who was in her 90s just saying how much this is helping them cope with a loss or with their own family. And, and it was interesting. You know, I was like, wow, mission accomplished. That if, if that's the case for everyone watching the film, I feel like we've done, we've done good. Well, it's, it's, it's hard to believe. I think we're coming close to, uh, to the end of our time. Uh, I don't have my usual producer whispering in my ears telling me to wrap it up, but, uh, I wanted to ask you the last, uh, last couple of questions. Um, uh, you know, you're originally from, from France, uh, and this podcast is produced by a, a production company based in London that specializes in docs on the U.S. Um, have you found that being, uh, well, I think you're, you've been in the U.S. for a long time, but uh, do you feel like an outsider's perspective has helped you in, in, the, in your work? I'll tell you, I'll tell you my, my own experience was that when I came to America, I was so in love with the American culture, with um, a certain type of, of, of cinema. Like I said, I was obsessed with Steven Spielberg and Brian De Palma. And, and I, I um, that American people at large, you know, whether it was within the film business, because I immediately started working in, in the business, but or, or friends that I made in New York, I was living in New York, um, had were in awe of the fact that I knew so much about the culture that I was so assimilated to, to the and so in tune with with uh, um, the cinema of 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 the seventies and stuff that um, I never felt like an outsider. I in fact I felt like I belonged there. And I had been taken away, put in France for a few years. <laughs> and then luckily I, I went back. Uh, um, I, I never felt like an outsider. Uh, and I never felt like I was bringing in a perspective that was uh, European um, or mm-hmm. a sensibility that was European. Um, but I do think that I had an appreciation that I learned from... Um, you know the sort of school of of Cahiers du Cinéma of Truffaut and mm. who 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 loved Hitchcock and recognized him as an auteur before um, you know many people did, uh, especially in his in in America. Um, that that I think I was I was really uh, um, pointing out to certain filmmakers like De Palma, for example, and. And Spielberg, who were known as those, you know, commercial directors. For me, they were, they were, you know, real auteurs. And I, I was looking for connections in their work to say, you know, someone who explores similar themes and and has a, a unique visual language is a, an auteur, whether it's it's in a big blockbuster like Close Encounters or a, a small film, it doesn't matter, you know? So so that's what I brought in, I think, that made me uh, maybe a little more um, unique um, and different from uh, the sort of popcorn, you know, going audience, you know? But I, 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 I feel like I was very... Um, 
American right away, you know. Uh, but, you know, it's interesting with age, you know, that changes. You know, I, I have a lot more nostalgia for, for Europe than I did when I first m moved to, to America. And I, I, I do think that some of the values that I really loved in the film industry when I first started have, have slowly been lost and I'm not as excited, you, you know, uh, about the new cinema, you know, than I was when I first discovered it. And I, I feel blessed as much as I wish I had, I was younger in many, you know, many, in many ways. I, I, I feel blessed that I grew up in really in the seventies, which was such a, a formative, uh, um, period for cinema and for me. And, and I feel that that's a real gift. Well, and then what about uh, what's next for you? Um, I mean, uh, in in this age of coronavirus and COVID nineteen, I mean, what's what what do you have in the works? You, you know, it's been an interesting time because uh, uh, if there is one aspect of the industry that's going to get started again fast, it's going to be the documentary uh, genre because it doesn't require big crews and and uh, um, so. Um, I've been busy uh, pitching um, almost since this started. I've had a pitch every other day. Um, and because the film came out in the middle of this crisis uh, um, and it did so well, um, there's been a lot of interest in, in, in my work. And so it's been a very strange, happy, sad kind of, of, of time. And... Um, and the the one project that um, I'm, I'm very very excited about, and I and I hope uh, it happens, is um, a book that uh, Lance Black wrote called Mama's Boy, and 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 it's uh, the story of his um, of of his own life uh, with his mother who um, had polio, and. Um, and his own story, uh, you know, fighting for LGBTQ equality and ultimately winning an Oscar for, um, for Milk. Um, and uh, so he wrote that book last summer, or the book came out last summer. I immediately optioned it and, and we've been trying to set it up um, as, a, as a documentary. And, and that's been an incredible gift and journey during this time because... Um, his mom had polio and that was, you know, um, not dissimilar to what we're going through right now. And, and you look at the photographs of the time, they're identical to what you're seeing, uh, today. So suddenly there was, uh, something very, uh, uh, relevant and again, identifiable, you know, but I'm excited about, about this project. Um, and there's several others that are coming my way that I don't want to, uh, curse the, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 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 um, the projects and, and, but, but it's, um, uh, I don't want to jinx the project is the, yes. is the word I should, I should use. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, it's an exciting time and I'm also developing a, uh, a feature film, um, a narrative film, uh, called Ghost in the Fields based on a novel by Peter Ferris, uh, that has won all of the, uh, literary awards in France. Um, and it's, uh, it's a very small, like noir thriller set in the South. 
And it's, it's absolutely an amazing, amazing piece of work. And the script is fantastic. And, and so I'm very excited about that. So fingers crossed, you know, who knows, you know, I've, I've had many, uh, things that I've gone, that I, that I've been excited about that never, um, that never happened and many things that have come my way and happened overnight. Um, Natalie would being a good example. So, you know, it's a, it's, it's a strange business. Well, that's, I mean, that's all very exciting. Um, I mean, just to remind our listeners, uh, the film we have been talking about and which you directed is, uh, Natalie Wood, what remains behind. And, um, you know, we have, I feel bad. We haven't even touched on all these other things that you've done in your, in your career, but, uh, well, I'm sure we'll have, we'll have, uh, notes in the, um, Links in the show notes. Uh, I think you have the longest Wikipedia page of anyone we've had on the show so far. So uh, the people can go there and uh, see all the things that you've been up to over these years. And uh, uh, is there is there a particular best way for people to follow you so they can see what is next in your uh, on the horizon? Yeah, I'm on Instagram, so um, I think it's uh, uh, it's Laurent underscore Buzero. So if you know how to spell my name. <laughs> <laughs> you can find me on Instagram. Well, well, great stuff. It's it's been a pleasure having you. Um, you know, maybe when you get one of these other projects done, we would love to have you back. It's it's been a, th- a thrill to have you on, and I just want to give a shout out to HBO for the uh, the screener. I, uh, I've had the advantage of of seeing the film a couple times now and thoroughly enjoyed it. And I just want to remind listeners to remember to like us and share us with your friends and family, wherever you happen to listen to or watch podcasts. And this is Factual America, signing off. You've been listening to Factual America. This podcast is produced by Alamo Pictures, specializing in documentaries, television, and shorts about the USA for international audiences. Head on down to the show notes for more information about today's episode, our guests, and the team behind the podcast. Subscribe to our mailing list or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Alamo Pictures to be the first to hear about new productions, to find out where you can see our films, and to connect with our team. Our homepage is alamopictures.co.uk.